If you don't have a Bible, you need to lift your hand. The uh, ushers have one for you. Here in the conference center, just keep it up high so that they can spot you. And if you get one of these paperbacks, I think it's page 610, Romans chapter 1. Page 610, Romans chapter 1. If, you, uh, if you're one of those people who like new things, then you picked a great Sunday to, to come. Um, if you're one of those people who like uh, God's gospel, it's even better for you. Because we're studying um, the greatest, one of the greatest books ever written. In fact, the book of Romans has been described as the most influential book of all time. Um, some of the greatest theologians you've ever heard of, Augustine and Wesley and uh, Luther, would draw their conversion from reading the book of Romans. Wesley just read the introduction to someone's work on Romans and came to faith in Christ. Um, some theologians have studied it and studied the kind of history of the church and revival and said that every great outpouring of revival in history has come from a study of the book of Romans. So are you ready? You ready? So your life will not be the same after we get done with this, God willing. Um, James Montgomery Boyce taught 244 sermons on this book. Um, Martin Lowe Jones did, Jones did 13 years, and, and we're going to do it in a year and a half. So we have an aggressive agenda. I was talking to somebody last week about doing a year and a half. They went, really? A year and a half? I, I mean, that's like, a, you know, we got 30-second capacity in our head, you know, for sound bites. And so um, we're going to be taking a fairly quick pace to Romans, and yet we're not going to run away from the hard work of Romans. Um, some have called it, I call it the Swiss Army knife of theology. Anything you want to know. If you had to leave in an emergency, grab Romans, because what you need to know about the gospel, Old Testament, New Testament, redemption, atonement, grace is right there. Um, here's why it's so important. Um, it is the clearest depiction, description of the gospel that we know of. Now, the gospel is laid out everywhere. The whole, whole of scripture from Genesis to Revelation is a redemptive story. It's all gospel. But Paul puts it together and boils it down in such concise ways, there's no clearer depiction of it that we know of. Um, it expresses the moral problem of sin more clearly than any other. In fact, in Romans chapter 1, um, to chapter 3, we're going to get blown away by the problem. I had somebody call me this week, left a message, I returned the call, and they don't go here very often, once in a while, and they were concerned that we talk about sin. And uh, I said, well, and his, his, his observation was that's all we talk about. And I said, well, you know, I hope that's not true um, in the sense that we don't deal with all of what the Scripture has to say, but there is no good news if there isn't also bad news, right? Do you believe that? And the, and the reality of what the scripture says here in Romans 1, and it's just going to confront us, is that sin is really, really, really that bad. And it's really that pervasive. And everyone has a sin problem. And if we don't believe that, then everything else you'd say about Jesus, redemption, atonement, or whatever, would be absolutely pointless. And so um, Romans deals with our moral crisis. It's the greatest... Um, statement of Christian theology that we know of, and probably more 
powerful than even those, although those are really, really good. Is there's a statement that Jesus made in Matthew chapter 7 that at the end times, at the end of life, there will be many that stand before God and say, hey, didn't we do miracles and didn't we prophesy and didn't we do all these things in your name? And Jesus is going to say, I, I don't know you. And uh, some of you today don't know him. Some of you today think you do, which is even far more dark than knowing you don't. It is so classic for religion and church to be the thing people look to to confirm some relationship with God or not. And I want you to know, if you have the ability to endure through Romans, you will not be the same. If you're far from God, if you're, if you're far from God and don't know it and think you are, Romans is coming. God and his gospel are coming to deal with us. And, and some of you are going to end up being totally destroyed in a good way. Because the gospel is our only hope. Gospel means good news. The good news that sinners can be saved. Saved completely and totally from the condemnation of sin and the consequence of sin, and the power of sin. So I'm asking you, church, hang in there. 18 months from now, you will know more, truly, but you won't be the same. This, this word of God will, will deal with us, and I believe that. In fact, when I started studying for this, I felt a little bit underwater, to be honest with you. I laid in my office all these books and thought, oh, I'm never going to not read. I'm just going to be reading until I'm, I'm telling I'm dead because there's so much here. But I, I, believe, I believe the best teacher is the Holy Spirit. And uh, so he's here with us and he will apply it. So I want you to commit to it. I had a wrestling coach, 1975. His name was John Feely. He didn't know how to wrestle, but he knew how to motivate. You know what I'm saying? Um, and he would start every season off this way. Gentlemen, if you have the ability to endure... If you have the ability to hang in there and work hard, the, after the season, you'll be in tournament time. And it's sort of kind of like my encouragement to you, church. If you have the ability to hang in there and not throw up things like, well, haven't we heard the gospel already? Haven't we heard it already? Haven't we, haven't we already discussed that? Then my promise to you is that you won't be the same. So we have a big task in front of us this morning, 15 verses of Romans chapter 1. And it breaks into two sections fairly easily. It would be great to teach two messages on it, but we're going to do both today. And if you're a note taker, if you'd like to get in your mind a handlebars for what's in here this morning, it's very simple. Two sections, the message and the motivation. That's what we're dealing with. Paul's message and, and his motivation behind the message. The first seven verses are the longest, I think, in the Bible, the longest run-on sentence we have. And it's very unusual for Paul because Paul typically starts a letter writing to a church saying, uh, this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in, and then he starts talking. Well, well, there's a reason why Paul blows the church up with gospel right out of the box is because they have no idea who Paul is. Paul has never been to Rome. The Romans don't know his agenda. They don't know what his message is. They don't know what he teaches. They don't know anything. So Paul jumps right into the story right away. Verse 2, after he gets done with verse 1 saying, Here, here's... Paul, he starts the gospel in five verses there uh, to just confirm with the church that the agenda is Jesus, the agenda is the good news story of the gospel of which the Roman church has been commended for. So he starts with basically a synthesis of the entire book. 
in these first six, seven verses. Verse one is, is basically Paul introducing himself to this church in Rome. Look, look at verse one with me. It says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. He calls himself a servant. The, the, the word servant means, is the Greek word doulos, which means slave. It's, the, it's someone who belongs to a master kind of slave. Um, this is Paul's description of what the gospel did to him. The gospel made him a servant. And, and he was a slave to sin, and now he's a slave to Christ in righteousness. And, and by the way, just so you know, everyone's a slave. You know that, right? Just depends on who. Let me now quote one of the greatest theologians I've ever heard of, Bob Dylan. Um, <laughs> in 1979, had an album called Slow Train Coming. And he wrote a song called You Gotta Serve Somebody. And in that song, he says, you get to serve the devil, or you have to serve the Lord, but you know you gotta serve somebody. Profound, because it's true. Everyone is a servant. It just depends on who. You're either stuck on self and broken and twisted, and so you're serving. You're a slave to sin, according to the gospel, the truth of what it says about us. Or, by faith in Christ alone, by grace alone, you walk free, and now you're a slave to the king. Paul says he's a servant of Jesus. He's a servant of of the gospel. He goes on to say that he's an apostle, a call to be an apostle. Apostles were those who had an extra measure of the Holy Spirit's power that brought authority to the words. So here we are reading the apostles' words. But Paul was different than the rest of the disciples who walked with Jesus. He, he wasn't there. And yet in Acts chapter 9, he was introduced personally to Christ and called into ministry in Acts chapter 9. In fact, the word called, if you like to take notes on this stuff, is the word subpoena. So Paul was subpoenaed by Jesus himself to the authority of an apostle. The subpoena means an order from the government that has the authority to compel a testimony. So Paul was compelled by the authority of Jesus, go and preach the good news of hope to sinners. He had no choice. So he was a servant. He was an apostle. He was a missionary. Look at verses 5 and and 14. When he's laying out why he's coming and to who he's coming, he says this, Speaking in back up verse 4, that this gospel according that was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among the nations. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and the foolish. Paul was a missionary, a missionary to Gentiles an ambassador. He represented Jesus. And so Paul gets done with kind of the first blush of who he is and why he's there. And then in verse two through verse six, he jumps into the gospel. Let me tell you, Roman church, what I'm here for. Let me tell you my agenda. Let me lay out the good news of the gospel. And this is his beginning. He says in verse two, that the gospel is the fulfillment of a promise that God made. Look at verse one. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. The gospel is the fulfillment of God's promise. This book right here, from Genesis to Revelation, is a redemptive story. It's all about 
God's answer to our sin. You get past Genesis 3, you see the collapse and you see the fall and you see the need and the gospel is everything else in it. And so this is, just to remind you, God's message. It's not a man message. It is the creator's authoritative words over man's solution, the, the salvation that we need from, from him alone. It's the, it's the same message of salvation pointed to throughout the Old Testament, right? So in Isaiah 53, the prophet tells of the suffering servant in such great detail, it couldn't be fulfilled in anybody else but Jesus. When God was talking to Abraham, saying, I'm going to make you a great nation, and somehow something happened to Abraham that was now credited to him as righteousness, that's the same activity that happens for every person who's ever put their faith and trust in Christ. There needs to be a received, credited righteousness, not of ourselves. And over and over and over again in the Old Testament, you see those prophecies all pointing to God's promise. There's a second thing about the gospel that Paul just launches into, and that is that it's all anchored in Christ. Look at verses 3 and 4. Concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel is centered on the person and the work of Jesus and nothing else. If you're, if you're the Roman church and you're reading this letter from a guy you don't know, very first words, he says, listen, by the way, don't be confused. It's all about Jesus. It's all centered on Christ. It's not about systems. It's not about law. It's not about religion. It's not about churches. It's not about goodness. It's not about self-righteousness. This is about Jesus. And we'll make another point in just a little bit that he is the hero of this story. And so he lays it out as the fulfillment of a promise that God has made. It is anchored in Christ. And then he says in verse 3, the gospel says Jesus was fully man. You see that phrase, who was descended from David according to the flesh? Jesus was a real person. Jesus was, had a real heritage. He was... He was a man who faced temptation, according to the scriptures, just like we do, yet without sin. In the, in the Roman world, <clears throat> Greek gods were products of legend. They were fabricated. It's made-up stories. Gods were fictitious. And Paul starts out saying, let me get this straight about God, just so you know. He's a real man, lived a real life, died a real death. You've got to deal with reality here. He was fully man. Second thing he says, or, or, or about Jesus, that he was fully God in verse 4. And was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. <clears throat> the resurrection didn't make Jesus God. He was God. The resurrection simply was the irrefutable, all-powerful evidence of his deity. He was God. He was man and he was fully God and he rose from the dead and the resurrection says so, that he was fully God. And so if you're the Roman church going, okay, so far we're tracking, Paul. We got the same gospel. And then he says this in verse five, that the gospel is about a received grace. So he talks about Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace. It's not of works. As much as you would like it to be, it's not. 
And I say that to, to my own condemnation because every one of us are better legalists than we are grace people. We would prefer a list somewhere that we could somehow measure ourselves, compare ourselves to other, and climb some ladder to a God who has a standard more like us. But the reality is God's standard is unreachable by humans. It can't be got. You can't know it. You can't be good enough. You can't pray enough. You can't go to church enough. God is here, and sin and us are here. Someone had to bridge that gap for us. And so grace has always been received. Unmerited favor, it's mercy, right? It's, it's getting what we don't deserve. And grace is never earned, ever and it's available to all who would believe. And that's a powerful thing we're going to unpack in the next nine to ten months. And, and just by, by the way, I'm going to get you ready for this. If, we, if God allows us to say what's in Romans well, some of you are going to be very offended by grace. Some of you are going to be liberated by it. Grace is an absurd thing because we are religious by nature. But nevertheless, Paul tells them it's about a received grace. The gospel is also about life change. Look at verse five. Through whom we've received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of the faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Here's what the gospel says. That Jesus is not just savior. He's Lord. And he doesn't save anybody, he doesn't change. Did you know that? If you're confused about Christianity and the gospel by looking at Christians, well, maybe you're not. Maybe you're looking at people who say with their mouth one thing, but there's no reality change in their life, and so you're confused because you know enough that the Bible says that he's Lord, and he transforms lives into his image over time, not perfection, but moving it down the field a little bit at a time. If you're confused because you see nothing, if you're sitting here today and you say, well, I don't see anything, well, then you need to ask some questions. Let's start at the very beginning. Faith itself Faith itself in the gospel that Jesus came and lived and died and applies his righteousness to you, the Bible says, is an act of God on your behalf. That's a sign of life. The Bible says that uh, Christians can't live a life of unrepentance. So if you've never repented of any sin in your life or if you have ongoing sin that you don't hate and don't stop and restart, even if you have to restart a hundred times a week, the Bible says they don't know anything about a Christian like that. Over time, we're transformed into the image of Jesus. Not to perfection, but changed. There should be some sins you don't think about anymore because the gospel has overpowered them. There should be service that you do because the gospel has compelled you. There should be loves and affections you have that you didn't have because the gospel empowers them. Christian, listen, this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't like getting locked down. This is liberty. This is the biblical definition of conversion. It is faith, but it's always a faith that transforms. Do you believe that? Yeah, it's faith alone, and God doesn't save you and leave you unchanged. So Paul says, let me get this gospel straight to you. It is a grace received, and it's about life change. And then one last thing he says, and that is that the gospel is about the glory and the renown 
of God. Do you see it in verse 5? For the sake of his name among the nations. Who's the champion of our story? Say it like you, like you mean it. There you go. He's the hero, right? It's his renown. Not a church's renown, not a person's renown. It is God's renown through Christ our Savior. This whole thing isn't about you, the recipient of grace. Even though we'd like to twist it that way, when it's all said and done and we're in heaven, it won't be about you then either. It's all about God. Whenever God saves a sinner, the character and the glory of God go on display. Not you. Now clearly we get what we love and what we couldn't get anywhere else. But it's about him. It's all about him and his character and his glory. Well, Paul has overwhelmed the church in Rome. You want an introduction? How's that? I'm an apostle. I'm, an, I'm a servant. I'm a missionary. And here's my message. Now, let me tell you why. Here's the motivation. Verses 8 through verse 14, Paul is now talking about how he feels. He's talking about what motivates him. And so he shows his heart, what he feels about the Roman church and their heart for the gospel, what he feels about his own heart for this church that he's writing to, and then what he feels about this message that he's proclaiming in these 16 chapters. And so for Paul, it's, he's painting a picture of faithfulness. That's what this is. If you're a, a person who likes to... In, title something. These verses are really discussion of faithfulness. And Paul starts out with the discussion about the church's faithfulness to the gospel. Do you see it? Verse 8, first I thank my God through Christ Jesus for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. What a contrast. This is the cynicism in me, just so you know. What a contrast to the church in our world, in our country when most of what you hear about churches is about this celebrity guy, pastor there, or this book writer there, this program here, these numbers there. Paul says, let me tell you what I see in you, church. Your faith. Like you believe. And, and your life is radically different than lives around you. You're not noticing a building. He's not noticing how they do what they do. He's talking about faith of which God is the author of. So, Paul commends them about their faith in God's gospel. This is the same group of people and then in just a few years who will be in a lion's den being torn apart because of their declared faith. This is the same group of people who Nero will dip in wax and light them on fire to light his gardens at night. These are the people who have to put up or shut up about faith. It's not about a church or the glory of a man or anything like that. This is about Jesus. So Paul looks at them and says, let me, let me tell you about faithfulness. I see it in you. I see change in you, and I see your devotion to Christ. And so if you like definitions, here's one for you. A faithful church is one who makes, makes much of Jesus and not itself. A faithful church that Paul describes here is one that makes much of Christ and not himself. And the second is like it, makes much of others. Right? Isn't that the great commandment? The second is like it. Love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then love your neighbors yourself. That is the essence of what it is to live faith out. We make much of Christ and not ourselves. 
When I was writing notes on Thursday, I thought about you guys, so I want to digress a little bit. Because I feel like Paul, a little bit in this, that I can reflect on what I see in you. And so I just wanted to tell you what I see. Um, These last four months, we have thrown a horrendous amount at you. Things like a transition from from Tom to me. Um, Things like essential elements of a strong church. Hey, we want to be a a word church. We want to be a praying church. We want to be a generous church. We want to be intentional about evangelism kind of church. We want to be biblical community and we want to serve the body. I mean, we're putting these things out, not just as words, but huge values that we want to be measured by in years to come. And you wrapped your arms around it. And we said, we, want to, we think God wants us to come together as a church. We need a building. And so you gave to it. And, and all the money is provided. Some of you sold jewelry. And some of you sold cars. And some of you gave stocks and bonds. And it blows me away. I see it as faith in you. That this is about God's gospel. So just, just take it from me to you. I'm very proud of you. I don't mean that to be condescending. I don't know what else to say. I love you. And I'm excited at what God's doing in your heart. And so like Paul, I can look at you and go, gosh, look what Jesus is doing in a bunch of people, right? So be encouraged of the faith that is being demonstrated in you. So verses 9 to 13, Paul transitions from a thought about their faithfulness, the church's faithfulness, and now his own to to the gospel. And by the way, if you're sitting here today and you're a leader or you want to be a leader, this is the time to listen up. Because Paul is uh, considering his own leadership and faithfulness to it. So I've kind of subtitled this little section of 9 through 13 about the heart of a faithful leader because Paul is just kind of gutting himself here in front of the Roman church and talking about how he feels and what he does about his feelings in ministry towards this church. And so this is kind of the heart of a faithful leader. And it starts with a love for God. Now you would think that's a no-brainer, but sometimes it's not. Verse 9. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit. The NIV uses this phrase, better rendered, with my whole heart. Um, Paul was intense about God. It was all that he had all the time about the glory of God. Heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of love. So what about us? Do we dump our bucket somewhere else in a place called selfishness? Would we say, I confess Jesus as my Lord and Savior. He gave everything to make me something. And then I spend the rest of my time on me for my stuff, whatever reasons. Um, Do you operate on this principle? God gets whatever is left. Because that's easy. And you don't have to plan for that one, by the way. That just comes out of us. Paul says, it starts with the love of God. If you're a leader of a small group, if you're a leader of an RC, if you're a leader of a round table, if you're a table leader, if you're a Sunday school teacher, if you're someone who aspires to leadership, you got to get this one. Love him with everything you got. Everything else comes in way distant, Right? There's another thing he says about a faithful leader, and that is that he's a faithful prayer, verse 10. Well, let's look at the end of verse 9. That without ceasing, I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will, I may now at last succeed in coming to you. Paul has just commended the Romans about their faith and faithfulness. 
But we all know this, without ongoing strength provided by God, everyone, including the Roman church, can't survive. They'll trip up, they'll fall, they'll hurt themselves or others, right? Has that not happened to you? So Paul knows, here's what I can do for them. Here's, what, here's the strongest thing I can do for them, and it's pray. Um, I am, by nature, a mechanic. Like, I think in my dream world, I'd work in a garage and, and never come out. You know why? Because projects might be difficult, but they're repairable. People aren't. People have reasons and whys and excuses and dilemmas and hurts and pains and secrets and stuff that you can't get to, me included. And so I look at people and go, gosh, I wish they could just get this or know that or believe this or walk free from that. And, and so everything in me, the mechanic in me, feels a little bit frustrated at the end of the day, but I can't just go, you're better. Prayer is the strongest thing I can do. Prayer is me saying out loud, I can't do it. I can't fix it. It shouldn't be me anyway. It's got to be the Father. So in our Building a Stronger Church series, The Essential Elements, we made uh, prayer one of the six. And, and I told you then that we have to become a praying church. We can't talk about it. We can't wish we were. We have to be. Because it's the greatest expression of what we believe in um, than anything else I can think of. Every Wednesday night, people gather to pray. And so here's a cheap plug. I want to invite you. And I don't want you to find the reasons why you can't. I want you to believe in prayer to such a degree that you think the joining of the saints to bang on the door of heaven over the same topic actually carries weight with God. Paul announced to you that we got a praise and prayer on Tuesday night. Come. We got a prayer walk in a couple of weeks around the building because it's not about a building, it's about ministry. And so we want to not be arrogant and assume that we can do it without God. So come and pray. Pray. Prayer says it's about God, not about us or our programs. Prayer says we believe in the power of God that He supplies. And prayer, by the way, is the antidote to living by sight. Do you struggle with that? Let's be honest. This thing we're talking about, Christianity, is a relationship based on faith, which is things you can't see and you can't hold and you can't know. You have to believe and God grants it, yes, but the language of faith is prayer. The language of, of the kingdom of God is like, I believe, I, I just believe, God, that when I leave this with you, that you'll provide the, the endurance. When I ask this of you, that if it's in your will, that you will do something about it. So Paul thought, and I think it's true, the strongest thing any leader can do for his people is pray for them. So you can be a marginally experienced leader. If you just simply pray for your people, you win. Paul goes on to talk about what a faithful leader is, and he says this is his heart, so we're learning from him. He says it's a, it's a love for people. Now, you would think that's a no-brainer, right? Like, don't, don't pastors and leaders of people, don't they love people? Mm-mm, not always. Sorry to tell you, um, but Paul certainly did. Verse 11, for I long to see you. The idea there is I'm passionate. I love to see you. 
Paul couldn't wait to be there. I've got a confession to make to you. I like to see you too. Might seem weird, but I do. And, and uh, every once in a while, I notice when you're not here, you know, some of you go AWOL for a while. This is, I just want to kind of tell you what church is, right? It's a relationship. I, I know that's not how it's perpetrated in our world. It's about a program. It's something you go to and you sit for a while, very low commitment. I get that, but not biblically. Biblically, this is a relationship. These, these are leaders and pastors and friends and family who love, care, support, build up, pray for, encourage, right? And you, vice versa. So being out of relationship should really, really, really be difficult. But sadly, in our, in our culture, it's not. So people just kind of vaporize. And I'll ask some of the guys, some of the pastors, hey, have you seen so-and-so? No, I don't know where they went. And this is a classic reason why. When people get bored with their faith or when they get stagnated, they typically blame the church they go to. And so it's kind of like, I'm tired of that restaurant. I'll go eat over here. Well... Just so you know, the problem goes with you. It's just a matter of time. So if I can encourage you to rethink from Paul's perspective what it is to belong to each other in relationship. Paul, the reason why Paul longed to be with them is because he loved them. And the only reason I, I miss you is because I love you. So when you disappear, and, and you know, here's the ironic part of this. The people that I'm talking to aren't, they're not here today, so they can't hear. <laughs> you can tell them, though. It's a relationship. So if you decide that, hey, man, you know, I'm just going to, I'm going to do what everybody else does. I need to go someplace else. Can you just add one other aspect to your experience? How about a conversation? Hey, by the way, or this is, I don't care if it's grumpy, angry, or whatever. How about a conversation? Because, like, just evaporating isn't biblical because it's a relationship. And Paul knew that. That's why he said, I, I, I got to be here with you because you're my people. One, one other thing that Paul talks about in his passion for this church as a faithful leader, and it's his desire to serve. Verse 11, for I long to see you that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. Paul wanted to bless the people in Rome. He wanted to give himself and give himself up for them. And, and I'm gonna confess this. It's such a contrast to the stuff you see today in leaders, leaders who talk about influence and power and, and extending leveraging their gifts. Let me give you one snapshot and you'll know what I mean. Jesus came to serve. The greatest leader ever chose servanthood as an expression of leadership, right? So here's the rule. The greatest leaders are the greatest servants. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about recognition. It's really not about influence, and it's not about leveraging your giftedness. It's about serving because it's about people. So Paul lays out the church's heart for the gospel. He lays out his heart for the church, and then he finishes with an expression of his motivation about the gospel, the message, and his faithfulness to that story too. And it's in verses 14 and 15. He says, I'm under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I'm eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. There are two phrases I want you to notice here that just tell the story of Paul's heart for the message. One is the phrase, I'm under obligation. And the other phrase is, I am eager to preach. Let's deal with the first one. The word obligation means debt. 
Paul says, I'm under debt with the message. What, what motivated um, Paul was the debt of the good news. You ever think of it that way? Let me use an Old Testament illustration to try to paint the story so you, so you can maybe wrap your heart around it. It's an obscure story in uh, 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7. It's a story about Samaria under siege from the Syrians. In fact, the siege was so great and so long that Samaria was now running out of food. And there's a couple of statements in that passage that talk about a donkey's head selling for food at huge rates and, and dove dung being also things they would sell at exorbitant amounts of money. One of the particular stories in that passage to describe how bad it had gotten was that two mothers had gotten together and agreed to eat each other's sons. And so one mother said, okay, you eat my son today and tomorrow we eat your son. Well, the, the story goes that they ate one son and then the other mother hid her son, screaming out to the king, help us. I mean, this is out of control. So the siege is great. They can't do anything about it. They're starving to death. They're cannibalizing each other. And now stop for a second. Out on the city gate, there are four lepers. They're ostracized, right? They're not supposed to be there anyway. So on the outside of this whole thing, watching this besieged Samaria not be able to eat or survive, and they're clearly in the harm's way too, and they said, well, what do we do? We can't go back home. There's no food there, and we're not wanted. What if we go to Syria? Here's two possible outcomes. One is they could kill us. It's bad enough. I guess that wouldn't be all that bad. Well, what if they decided to give us some food? That might be a good idea. So they leave. These guys have this great idea, and they leave. They go back to Syria, and they come into the camp of the Syrians, and there's nobody there. It's empty. They had left everything, horses and cows and tents and food and gold and possessions. God, according to scriptures, has, had did a miracle. He portrayed the sound like a mighty army coming against them, and they freaked out and left, left everything. So these lepers come into the camp going, holy cow, and they go into these tents, and they start eating and filling their guts and loading their pockets with gold and going out in the desert and burying all this stuff, and then they came to their sentences. This is what they said. And they said to each other, we're not doing right. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. That's exactly what Paul said when he said, I'm obligated with the gospel. I got good news. People are starving to death. People are dying. People are hurting each other. Just like these lepers said, we got to go back. They need, they need help and they need freedom and they, they need food and they need to be relieved. And Paul thought that about the gospel. He said, the gospel is the most amazing story ever. Sinners can be forgiven. I'm obligated. I'm in debt to tell the good news. So here's a question to you, church. Do you feel the debt? Seven, eight weeks ago, we asked you to text into us names of family and friends and coworkers and neighbors and acquaintances that you thought needed the grace of God. We've been praying for those every Wednesday night, every one of them by name. So let me ask you a question. Do you feel the debt of the good news to your friends that you wrote down? Is it an obligation? Are you running around experiencing the riches and the feast of the good news only to look back at everyone who's suffering and say, whatever, 
You see, that says something about your heart if you're indifferent to it. Do you feel the debt of it? Well, next week we're going to stick our nose in this subject big time. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. But for now, you just wrestle with that question and maybe pop it up two or three times this week. Do I feel the debt of the good news? There's another phrase that Paul uses here to describe his his motivation, faithfulness to the message, and that is that he's eager to preach. So, So this obligation with the good news was the debt of it. Well, this eager to preach is the joy of it. Here's a whole other side of why we do what we do. Paul's joy is to tell the nations about God and his gospel because it's happy news. Is the gospel good news? (laughs) It's okay, 830 didn't do that very well either. (laughs) Is the gospel good news? Yes, it's good news. How good? Pretty good. I was trying to find things that would put us in that place of having amazing news. Some of these work and some of these don't, but you remember when you got engaged? Some of you are looking at each other. And you sent out the invitations to family and friends and said, hey, come and celebrate. This is a big day. I'm committing my life to another life for the rest of my life. This is a big day. You remember, remember some of you, who, the joy of that? You told a bunch of people. Do you remember when you brought home your first child or your second or third or whatever? Remember how happy you were? Like, I can't believe they're healthy or I can't believe they're here or I can't believe God is so good. If you play the stock market, what if tomorrow it goes up 500 points? Ridiculous. You would tell everybody. See, that's what good news does. Good news always makes you talk. Always. So when I say to you, is the gospel good news? And you go, yeah, yeah, it's good news. Do you talk about it? See, when we get to verses 16 and 17, Paul's just going to kind of stick our nose in it a little bit. Because everything he's just given us for motivations of ministry and motivations for care and faithfulness has everything to do with what he thinks about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that sinners can be saved and go free. So let me leave you with a couple of thoughts today. And they're more preparatory thoughts for the future, so I just need you to hang in here for just a second. I I want you to prepare yourself for the outcome of this study. If you got the guts to come for 18 months to hear all of it, I want you to prepare for the outcome because it won't be knowledge. Will you learn something? Yes. But knowledge doesn't save people. Knowledge doesn't change people. I want you to be prepared for the outcome of love and obedience and humility. Because some people have looked at Romans and said to the church, well, the church, every time it gets this grace alone thing, they kind of puff up and strut and hold, you know, snap their suspenders. And clearly that isn't the point of the gospel. So we're going somewhere here if the Holy Spirit's in it. If he's going to do the teaching, here's what he's going to do with us. There's going to be a deeper love for God and Jesus, our Savior, and the gospel of freedom by grace in Christ alone. There will be a greater desire to walk free from sin and obedience to him, and we will be a humble, serving people. I want you to prepare yourself for that. 
I want you also to um, continue to do the work of, of your faith. Um, I don't know why churches are known for what they're known, but I don't want to be known for anything but the gospel. I really don't care. I mean, to be honest with you, I, there, we have an amazingly talented staff. There's a lot of creativity, but I could care less about all the things we do. I could care less about a building. I care a lot about Jesus. I care a lot about us getting it at such deep levels we couldn't help but give it away. So I want you to prepare yourself and get ready to be known for faith. You've got faith. It's growing. It's going to grow more. I want you to, to continue to work at it. And then one last thing. I want you to measure your leadership by Paul's example. Everyone in here who is either a leader or aspires to a leader, um, Paul has said some powerful things about what it is to lead well, about love and devotion and prayerfulness and loving people and serving people. Not complex, but powerful, right? Right? We, uh, I should have said this last hour, and I didn't. Back when we were doing the essential elements, we uh, started with the Word of God is one of the things we want to be known for. And we put out there, if you remember, you probably don't, a reading challenge for the month of April. And we said, we're going to read a chapter of Romans a day, Monday through Thursday, for the four weeks of April. Now, some of you have done it. Amen. You get points in heaven. The rest of us, we can catch up. You're only four chapters behind if you jump in it now. We're going to send out some things on the city, some blogs that help remind you. But I would love for us to go through that reading challenge together because nothing softens the human heart like the Word of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. God, we love your gospel because you first loved us. Thank you for the testimony of of Paul and his agenda and intentions with the good news to the church in Rome. Thank you, God, that uh, Rome was known for faith in Christ, and we know where that comes from. It's a gift. God, we're just starting this journey, and there's so much to it, and, and it's so transformational. There are people here today who, who love your gospel. Let them love it more. And there are people here who don't. Reach them, God, by the power of your spirit, I pray. They would see their sin and they'd want Jesus, the solution we pray. Amen.